The River and the Redeemer by Rav Hanoch Waxman Unlike those he would eventually lead out of slavery, Moshe never served an Egyptian taskmaster. He was spared the whip and the back-breaking drudgery. In fact, Moshe belonged not to the slave class, but to the class of nobles. During his youth in Egypt, rather than spending his days amongst slaves, Moshe moved in the most rarefied circles, the court and house of Paro. How Moshe got there is familiar. Shortly after his birth, his mother realized that she could no longer conceal him. Realizing that he would soon be detected and cast to his death, she fashioned a basket and, after placing him in it, set it amidst the reeds by the banks of the Nile. There, the daughter of Paro found him and, taking mercy upon him, adopted him as her son. While the Torah clearly marks out Moshe's path from child of slaves to child of a princess, it gives us little clue as to the necessity and meaning of Moshe's upbringing as an Egyptian prince. We are left wondering as to the reason for his transformation from slave to royal. What prompted the divine wisdom to arrange for the future Redeemer of Israel to be raised in the house of Paro? In other words, how does this very first part of Moshe's biography fit into the larger story of his life and his destiny? Let us complicate the matter a little bit. Throughout the beginning of chapter 2, the story of Moshe's birth and move from his birth home to his adoptive home, the Torah sets up a textual interrelationship between Moshe's birth mother and the daughter of Paro. Upon Moshe's birth, Moshe's mother sees that he is good. When she can no longer conceal him, in order to save him, she takes the basket. Shortly afterwards, the text describes the daughter of Paro as also seeing and taking. She sees the basket amidst the reeds and takes it to her. Her seeing and taking place her in parallel to Moshe's mother and emphasize the nascent fulfillment of Moshe's mother's hopes in seeing and taking. His mother hoped for someone else, better able to protect her child than she, to glance upon her child with the very same love that she bore her child, to see the goodness that she saw. The daughter of Paro is that person. In fact, her acts of seeing and taking are followed in the text by a third occurrence of the verb pair. Upon opening the basket, the daughter of Paro sees the child and has mercy upon him. This is followed by her acquiescing to the child's sister's suggestion to hire a Hebrew wet nurse, the hiring of Moshe's mother for the job, and the taking of Moshe by his very own mother. This second vision of the daughter of Paro, her second seeing, completes the plan of the mother of Moshe and miraculously allows her second act of taking, the return, if even temporarily, of the child she never dared hope to see again. Once again, the women are linked, parallel mothers engaged in a joint project of saving the child. The complex parallel and cooperative relationship expressed by the verb pair can be further elucidated through a structural point. Throughout the story, the child moves around. In the first stage, he is located with his birth mother, in her basket and under the daughter's watchful eye. At this point, he is found by the daughter of Paro, who takes possession of him. In the third stage of the story, the child once again moves back to the care of his mother, and finally in the fourth stage, back to the care of the daughter of Paro. This A-B-A-B pattern once again stresses the two-mother parallel argued for above. In the same vein, we may note that Moshe is referred to by the words son, ben, twice, once as the son of his Israelite mother, and once as the son of the daughter of Paro. Likewise, we are twice told that he has grown up by Yigdal, 
once upon leaving the care of his birth mother, and once upon going out, only days before permanently leaving the care of his adopted mother. He has been raised twice. Finally, the name Moshe fits with this theme. The daughter of Paro named the child Moshe, since she had drawn him from the water, min mishitihu. His name reflects the crucial moment of linkage, the forging of parallel between the two women, the creation of the cooperative endeavor of saving and raising the child. In sum, in thinking about the mystery of Moshe's youth, we cannot limit ourselves to focusing on his royal upbringing or Egyptian education. Rather, we must focus on the role of the daughter of Paro and the cooperative endeavor of saving and raising the child sketched at the beginning of chapter 2. In other words, what constitutes the significance of the daughter of Paro becoming the second mother of Moshe? What constitutes the inner meaning of Moshe being saved in this way? As briefly noted above, the motif of the river comprises an important element in the story of the birth of Moshe and his rescue. This, of course, is where the action happens. Moshe's mother places him in the river, the daughter of Paro goes down to bathe at the river, and the maidservants of the daughter of Paro are depicted as walking along the banks of the river. Moreover, the naming of Moshe contains an implicit reference to the river. He has been drawn from the water. In other words, the river where the daughter of Paro bathed. Taken together with the double usage of the term sun, the focus on the river forges an interesting connection to the verse immediately preceding the story of Moshe's birth and rescue, the report of Paro's murderous decree. As the culmination of a lengthy process delineated in chapter 1, Paro demands the commission of genocide by the Egyptian people. And Paro commanded all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall leave alive. Here, too, we have the term son and the mention of the river. In fact, the story of the birth and rescue of Moshe constitutes the reversal of Paro's decree. Paro had demanded that the sons and the river be conjoined for the purposes of death. In the story of the birth and rescue of Moshe, Moshe's mother places him in the river on the hope of somehow preserving his life. The child is rescued and raised by the daughter of Paro. In other words, the son and the river are conjoined for the purposes of life. The name of Moshe further emphasizes the reversal theme. Paro had commanded the throwing of the sun into the river. Here, in a clear physical reversal, the sun is drawn from the river. Moreover, Moshe is rescued by the daughter of Paro, the daughter of he who issued the decree. As if to emphasize the undermining of Paro's will and rule, the term the daughter of Paro appears numerous times throughout the story and constitutes the sole identity of Moshe's adoptive mother. Paro's very own daughter constitutes the instrument of his reversal. Finally, in nearly the ultimate irony, the child who by virtue of Paro's decree should have been drowned becomes the adopted son of his daughter, his adopted grandson. The child is raised in his court and house as a prince of Egypt. This is not the first time Paro's plans have been frustrated. As pointed out previously, Paro's shameless demand for the commission of genocide constitutes the culmination of a lengthy process. At first, claiming that the people of the children of Israel are more numerous and mightier than we, Paro instituted forced labor for the children of Israel. He placed taskmasters over them and had them build cities. While the purpose of the labor seems primarily political and economic, control over the children of Israel and the enrichment of Egypt, Paro's plan also contains a strategic ethnic component,
It is in order to afflict them with burdens. Slavery in the ancient Near East comprised not just a method for the control of a numerous and mighty people, but also a way to wear them down, to slowly but surely lead to their physical elimination. But Paro's first plan failed spectacularly. Immediately after the description of the plan, we are told that the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Undeterred, Paro moves on to the next stage, Whereas before the children of Israel were only subjected to taskmasters, sare misim, a standard institution of forced labor, and forced to build cities, now they are subject to ruthless enslavement, embittered lives, hard labor, and all forms of work, both urban and agricultural. Apparently, stage two also didn't seem to do the trick. Shortly afterwards, Paro commands the midwives of the Hebrew women to murder all male children upon their birth. Surely this technique will serve to reduce the number of the Hebrews. But even stage three, the command for hidden genocide, proved insufficient. The midwives fear God. They claim that the Hebrew women give birth before they can arrive, and refuse to carry out Paro's order. Once again, despite Paro's most valiant attempts, we are told that the people multiplied and grew very mighty. In response, perhaps nearing desperation and having already laid the groundwork, Paro moves to stage four. He shifts from a policy of hidden genocide to a policy of open genocide. He commands that all Egyptian citizens participate in throwing the baby boys into the river. All of this seems no mere accident. Throughout the escalation and the slow slide into genocide, the text attributes the ever-increasing growth of the Hebrews and the frustration of Pharaoh's plans to the hand of God. The midwives refuse to carry out the stage three plan of hidden genocide because they fear God. Likewise, the verse that most clearly emphasizes the repeated failure of Paro's plans also emphasizes the covenantal context of the oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. The Torah states that the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The term affliction constitutes the key term and concept in the covenant of the pieces. The promise of multiplication of descendants comprises the conceptual partner of the suffering promised in the covenant. Paro's actions are both a result of divine providence and simultaneously countered by divine providence. This entire theme reaches its crescendo in the story termed The Birth and Rescue of Moshe, what may now be thought of as the providential contradiction of the fourth stage of Paro's plan. The Egyptian oppression of the children of Israel has deteriorated into open and systematic mass murder. But just as God countered and frustrated Paro's previous actions, so too here he undercuts Paro. In a story that foreshadows the battle between God and Paro implicit in the entire Exodus from Egypt story, God reverses Paro and conjoins the river and sun to provide life. This rescued child will be the future redeemer of the children of Israel, the instrument for bringing the entire edifice of oppression crashing down. Moreover, in almost the ultimate demonstration of the power of providence and the impotence of Paro's rule, Paro's own daughter becomes the mother of the instrument of Egypt's destruction. Paro and his house raise the instrument of their eventual defeat. They rescue and raise the Redeemer.